Chapter Four of Six Women and the Invasion by Gabrielle Yetta and Marguerite Yetta Malera. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by J. L. Baldwin. Part Two. Frenchman, I saw thy child who cried alone on the road. I have comforted him. I have reassured thy wife. Thy field lay fallow. I have tilled it. When peace reappears again on earth, may thou reap the fruits of my labor. Published in German in the Liller Zeitung, translated into French, and reproduced in the Gazette des Ardennes. Chapter 4 Placid and heavy on their placid heavy horses, they slowly advanced along the street. Of giant stature they came on, revolver in hand, with the self-reliance of brutal strength. Their red-edged caps made their hard-featured faces still harder. It was a sight to strike nature herself with horror, and hidden behind the muslin curtains we sobbed bitterly. The guests, huddled together in the dimly lighted room, were silently weeping. The women crossed themselves and watched over their children as if it were old bogey's steps they heard. The men tugged nervously at their moustaches and shook their fists in the empty air. Our gestures made the poor people uneasy. "'Heavens!' the women groaned. "'Don't show your face at the window!' Don't open the curtains. Don't draw their attention to the house. How frank they are, an old woman whimpered. How splendid to be frank like that. As to myself, I could not be so. I suppose she meant courageous, but courage was not in question. We thought of nothing. We felt nothing. We were only looking at the men. We were glaring with all our eyes at a sight that crushed our souls. Grief left a huge void in our hearts. The enemy was there, and it was all up with us. I think we had suffered less if we had seen the Germans arrive in a town. A town is always somewhat of a courtesan. It gives a hearty welcome and hospitality to everyone. It is daily a prey to strangers of ill repute. If invasion beats against its walls, if a hostile army crosses its streets, one human flood succeeding so many others, the town scowls at the foe and then loses all memory of him. But there in a small village, hidden in a fold of the French ground, in a tiny hamlet, which a hostile mind never chose for a shelter, the presence of the invaders seems to profane the very grass, and ever after the poor little place will remain an unhallowed spot which bloodshed and years will not purify again. After the horsemen had passed, there rolled along cannon and powder carts, whose rumbling set our teeth on edge. "'Grandmother, look there!' cried out Colette. On a powder-cart, looking very unhappy, sat the small dog we had met in the meadow. So the Germans had traversed Morny. They had followed close upon us. At last there came an end to the procession. The street was empty. No one uttered a word, and we ran away to cry to our heart's content. House, yard, barns were all crowded with people. I took refuge in the garden. Nature seemed covered with an ashen veil. The very sun was obscured. Had the radiant morning really begotten this sad noon? Like a wounded animal looking for a dark shelter, I fled to the orchard, and crouching down in a corner close to the wall I wept most bitterly, without knowing why. Someone called me. I had to go back to life, or rather a life, unknown, unsuspected, in which all was changed. The Prussians were advancing through France. On arriving at the house I met only with grief-stricken features and swollen eyes. We had no mind to eat. Only a few refugees already indifferent, and the dogs, did not lose their appetite. But standing at the dining-room windows we saw a sight worth seeing. 
the prussians had taken possession of the village and were looking for what they might lay their hands upon they seemed to think little madame lenu's shop had been created for their own special use and they set about plundering it according to rule they went up three steps at a time got among the groceries made their choice and came back their arms filled with bottles and bags in short they carried away all that was eatable and drinkable in the house they went up and down without interruption like two rows of ants busy stripping a sack of flour one row full the other empty the grocer's wife a small woman dark and pale with large black eyes stood by unable to withstand the plunderers she locked the door the first soldier who encountered that obstacle went to the window broke a square turned the door handle and muttering threats reopened the door with a look of despair madame lenu went and fetched an officer who was eating upstairs come and see what your men are doing the officer came looked round and declared c'est la guerre madame and he went back to his lunch the shop cleared out the men made farther search into the house and discovered a small storeroom which they emptied with equal activity for the pleasure of the thing they cut stockings to transform them into socks and spilled ink on petticoats and blouses the last comers took the trap from the coach-house the horse out of his stable put the horse in the trap and drove off with a light heart a bitter disenchantment filled our tired hearts nothing would have astonished us in the afternoon two soldiers entered the farm but at the sight of the yard crowded with men and dogs withdrew broken down with weariness we went early to bed a ladder about twenty feet high led to a square opening through which we climbed into the hayloft there every one of us made a hole in the hay and buried herself in it now in theory hay offers a soft and sweet-smelling couch the reality is slightly different you may find comfort in this bed if you are wrapped up in cloaks and shawls to keep out the cold of the night but the odor of the hay will make you sneeze you will soon feel stiff in your legs and hard blades of grass will prick your ankles and your neck despite minor annoyances my companions were very soon slumbering for my part i could not sleep i was feverish and my golden waistband played tricks and got into my ribs the slanting light of the moon gave an added pallor to the faces of the four sleeping girls whose presence on their bed of hay beneath the beams of the loft which spiders had covered with their grey lace was astonishing enough it seemed as though the four heads had been put there for a whim and the bodies laid down somewhere else i fell into a doze i saw hundreds of prussians pass before my eyes laden with goods and carrying away the very houses then there came a multitude of galloping horses which all vanished from my sight and i was asleep the next day an impudent sunbeam woke us up by caressing our eyelids in the barn below the refugees were bustling about noisily the first moment after awaking was cruel we had as stendhal says to learn our misery afresh one after the other like fowls getting out of the hen-house we went down our long ladder and ran off to wash and to hear the latest news that day also was a day of tears the villagers frightened to death had not dared to unlock their doors and we heard only in the morning that a french convoy had been taken by surprise and captured by the germans at neville no more than two miles from chevrigny then a scout a fact completely unconnected with the former had been killed by the enemy at a crossway near madame la roi's house we went to see the place where the two white roads cross each other large reddish spots still marked the ground kneeling down we kissed this blood which cried for revenge 
and from our inmost soul we besought heaven that France should be victorious over her enemy, so that her heart's blood might not be shed in vain. Some peasants who had witnessed the scene gave us an account of it. In great numbers the Germans came down the road. All of a sudden two French scouts appeared on the outskirts of the wood, saw the enemy, fired at them, and then turned back. One of them was lucky enough to get under cover, but the other, severely wounded, was unhorsed and fell down. Stretched by the wayside, he made an attempt to get up, but his adversaries rushed upon him, and in a confused scuffle beat him to death with the butt-ends of their guns, and rode away at a full gallop. The victim was to be buried that very morning, and as we wished to be present at the funeral, no time could be lost. When we arrived at the churchyard, two men were already digging a narrow grave. The body, wrapped in a white sheet, was lying on a stretcher. There was no coffin. Soldiers should lie in the soil for which they have died. The red spot beneath his head grew larger, little by little, and the blood that trickled down made a dazzling rill on the white sand. We approached him with a shrinking heart. With pious hands the gravedigger lifted up the sheet to show us the face of the dead man. An aquiline nose and a firm chin were still distinguishable. The rest of the features were clotted with blood and shapeless. Nearly choked with sobs, we could not help wondering from which wound the blood had flowed, when suddenly the truth flashed upon us at a gesture of the old gravedigger who pointed at what were but the day before the boy's eyes. His eyes! Oh, you cowards! Villains! They had not only beaten him to death, they had put his eyes out. He was defending himself like a brave soldier. He was alone against twenty, and they had murdered him. There on the white road, in the sunshine, they had committed their crime. The shades of night had fallen upon him before he descended to the tomb. Oh, vengeance, vengeance! We wept, we cried, and nothing could comfort us. We wept over the gallant soldier of France who fell so near us. We wept over all the dead and wounded. And above all we wept, oh, narrowness of the human heart, over the one soldier we loved, whose uncertain fate tortured our hearts. Oh, my posy, my treasure, my love, my pride, have you not asked for a dangerous mission? Have you received your death wound, outnumbered in some lonely corner? Have they... The terrifying thought, oh, his eyes, his eyes, it was beyond endurance. Crushed with grief, I fell senseless. When I came to myself, the priest had said the usual prayers and was gone. My companion stood up, shedding silent tears. The two villagers gloomily filled the grave, and the earth fell with a hollow sound on the poor body. One of the men broke off in the middle of his work and told us of the scout's death. What he said confirmed what we had already heard. Curse them, he cried out, and with a gesture of rage seized his spade and began again to fill the grave, but we had not done with emotion yet. Do you know that the Germans took three hundred prisoners yesterday? someone asked us. You will see them pass on the road. The churchyard is terraced to the street which runs down a steep hill, and thence already we caught sight of a few horsemen, closely followed by soldiers on foot. They were French. At the sight of the enemy, our grief all of a sudden turned to wrath and madness. Here they were in our own country, the very same we saw yesterday, no doubt. They were those, perhaps, who had blinded and killed the scout, and they were taking our brothers to captivity. Oh, for the power to strike, to kill those men, to hurl down upon them some of those big stones half-loosened by time. We shuddered at the mere sight of them, a bantering, conceited, happy mob. The faces of Yvonne and Antoinette, standing among the crosses, were wet with tears and convulsed with rage. 
Hatred was so clearly visible in their eyes that the faces of the Germans grew hard and stiffened as if they had been given a slap in the face. They pass, they are gone, and now the prisoners are coming. They seemed to have made up their minds to accept the situation. They were hot and talked among themselves in a low voice. The officers drove in a jolting car, motionless and spent. We could not see them very well, but we could distinguish the stripes on the captain's sleeve, and then the cart disappeared from sight at a winding of the road. The way was open, we went home, and when we were alone, Genevieve and I fell into each other's arms, and without saying a word wept again inconsolably. Towards the close of the day the garden tempted us. It is a dear old garden, full of shade and of old-fashioned sweet-smelling flowers. It is about four yards above the level of the street, and if you sit on the wall, as large as an easy chair, you can see all that goes on in the street below. Like souls in agony, we dragged ourselves along the alleys edged with box, doleful and weary. From the wall we observed the four points of the compass, not a Prussian in sight. So we began to talk to little Madame Lenu, who looked out of her window just over the way. Close to her stood a young girl about fifteen years of age, whose head, framed in a handkerchief tied under the chin, was the most exquisite ever seen. Raphael might have drawn her fine features, her clear eyes. Even her hands, browned by the sun, were pretty. Even her waist was elegant in spite of an unbecoming frock. Oh, France, you are rich in all treasures, and that sweet little maid is not the least of them. The grocer's wife confided her sorrows to us in a bitter tone. Two old men passing by stopped in the street to condole with her. Then a third person, shabbily dressed, joined in the talk, and from the very first proved interesting. He was a soldier, escaped from the yesterday's fight, and he told us his adventure in detail. Tuesday, he said, we slept in Ardon, a small place we had reached at five o'clock in the evening. The horses were not tired, and we might have marched on. At least we ought to have been up at three, instead of which we set out again at six o'clock and were not bidden to make haste. We did not know that the enemy was treading in our steps. About nine we approached this place quite easy in our minds when we heard the people cry, The Prussians! To the right about! Quick! Quick! Convoys like us are not looked upon as fighting men, do you see? We ought to be a few miles behind the front. We were but scantily armed. Some of us had a revolver and no bullets, the others bullets and no revolver. What could we do against the cannon which peppered us from the top of the hill? We were ordered back. The drivers made what speed they could when, just at the turn of the road, one of the carts managed to tumble down. Those that followed at full speed were thrown down upon it, and thus made a barricade which held up all the rest. The guns fired without ceasing. Our captain came up. Nothing to do, my lads. We are caught. Be quick. Get a white flag. We looked for a white flag. There was none. At length a white handkerchief was hoisted on a stick, and then a troop of horsemen cantered down upon us. Lay yourselves in the ditch, we heard. The horses pawed our backs, and I assure you the Prussians did nothing to hold them back. I will show you. And the man, taking off his jacket, bared his bruised and swollen back. Still lying in the ditch, I noticed close to me the opening of a gutter stone stopped up with mud and grass. I tried to pull it out. It gave way. I got into the narrow passage and cried out to my companion, There is room but for one. It is one safe and sound, he answered, and stopped up the opening of the pipe again. For twenty-six hours I lay in there, with the Germans overhead. Never in my life did I think of my wife and children as I did then. At eleven o'clock, when all the noise had ceased, I ventured out of my hole. 
People who were working hard by took me in, dressed my wound, and gave me civilian clothes. I hoped to escape to the woods and join the French army again. And so saying, the man went away. We called him back to slip some biscuits and chocolate into his hand. With a smile, he pointed to his full pockets and said, I am well stored, you see. I will share with the others. Alas, he was not alone. The convoy amounted to eight hundred soldiers. About fifteen had been killed, three hundred fifty taken prisoners, and the rest were hidden in the woods. The boldest or the luckiest might reach the French lines. The others would probably wander about, like wild beasts who hide themselves, would suffer cold and hunger, and then after weeks or months of this wretched life they would be caught and sent to Germany, unless they were shot. Our thoughts were mournful as death when at nightfall we climbed a second time to the hayloft. We could not sleep. Our anxiety was too great. Were the Germans still gaining ground? Would they sweep onward like a cloud of insects toward Paris, whose splendor and renown dazzled and attracted them invincibly? Oh, may they burn their wings there and be carbonized to the last one. The next day we went to see the place of the skirmish. The fields on both sides of the road were all covered over with things the soldiers had thrown away. In some places the grass was heaped with knapsacks, papers, clothes, and arms. We tramped on. The road wound its way through meadows and woods, and then got into a funnel-shaped valley. Here had been the thickest of the fight. The cavalry came up from behind. There were the guns on the rocks to the right and left. Alas, the convoy had really been caught in a trap. The three carts still stood in the middle of the road, and the meadows were thickly strewn with soldiers' things, papers, and discarded arms. Colette discovered a beautiful sword hidden in a bush. She quickly put it back again, that presently she might come and fetch it. It would be so much gained. A passerby gave us some other details. There was a body here, another there. It was to be feared that a few more dead soldiers were hidden in the wood. On our way back we picked up all the letters, books, and papers which we found, hoping we might later on forward them to the soldiers' families, and at the same time tell them news of the unfortunate convoy. We passed through Neuville, and there we saw the ammunition captured the day before, heaped up in a yard. Another Cerberus, adorned with a spiked helmet, watched over mountains of bullets and boxes of cartridges. There was seven million francs worth, said the peasants. Returning to the village, sunk in despondency, we heard the sound of a drum, and we arrived just in time to listen to the proclamation which the rural constable read aloud. Arms and clothes belonging to French soldiers must be gathered up and brought without delay to the mayor's house by order of the German authorities, said the reader, a small hunchbacked man, and tears rolled down his cheeks. At Madame Laroise we found a change for the better. The refugees had set out homewards, and the friends from Léon, by taking leave, enabled us to live once more after the fashion of civilized people. With pleasure we stretched our limbs, which three nights had stiffened and tired out, in a comfortable bed. From that time fate proved merciful, and for a few days spared us new troubles and violent emotions. Of course tears always trembled on our eyelids if some incident happened to revive our wounds, but after so many mental pangs the surrounding peace was a solace to our minds. Life sprang up anew in our hearts, and with life spirits. Many a time, was it a reaction, we burst out laughing, broke into mad inextinguishable laughter. Lisa more than once set us in a roar. Lisa is Madame Leroy's maid, a maid who has land of her own, who possesses a mile away a house, a horse, a dog, and, in ordinary times, a husband. 
but as the times we live in are by no means ordinary sidor for he is called sidor had joined the army to make war against the king of prussia was madame la roi alone lisa would discharge with assiduous attention the duties of her place had madame la roi friends or relations to entertain lisa went home again and reappeared only to give herself up to her menial duties lisa is a tall woman clumsily built with a funny hun-like face her small eyes her high cheekbones prove that a drop of asiatic blood runs in her veins have i not hinted in a former chapter that attila may have sent a reconnoitring party down here but if lisa has inherited her strong frame and her snub nose from her ancestors the huns to whom does she owe her restlessness and her pusillanimity no doubt to her great-grandmother the frankish woman who had to submit to the wild asiatic for lisa was not brave lisa did not dare face the prussians from leon morny and other places people fled to chevrogny it was then an additional reason for lisa's fellow villagers to run away farther too the women had made up their minds to go as soon as the enemy was descried from afar lisa's horse mouton and madame la roi's horse chantilly would be put to and both fiery steeds as fiery as their names would take their mistresses to a safe place but alas man proposes a cry arose the prussians lisa heard it snatched up a big loaf in bewilderment and went full gallop towards the forest with her dog at her heels after her galloped a troop of her companions just as bewildered they went down the road struck across the country cleared the hedges and plunged into the forest in the heart of the wood they stopped blessing their star which had led them to this wild and safe spot at that very moment they became speechless the report of a cannon resounded in the air then a second one and a full volley followed the poor wretches had thrown themselves headlong into the valley where the convoy struggled against its foes and the grape-shot fell upon them without mercy the harmless troop however lifted up its suppliant arms toward heaven which did not see them at all for the foliage was too thick and muttered hollow prayers to some sylvan divinity which heard them not for the cannon was too loud then they ran away and cowered under the bushes shells bespattered them facetiously with moss and earth they crouched in a hut that happened to be there a malignant cannon-ball carried off a corner of the roof they stuck close to the trunk of a tree merely to tease them bullets tore off its leaves and its branches which rained gently down upon their heads the unfortunate fugitives at last gloomily resigned sat in a circle and waited for the end in the calm of despair then all sounds ceased they opened one eye then the other stretched themselves got up counted themselves and discovered with the greatest amazement they had lost neither one hair save those which they had torn in terror nor one button save those which panting fear had burst from their corsage these refugees of the forest had no thought of leaving their precious shelter they ate their provisions which in their prudence they had brought with them and lisa's big loaf proved a great success they spent the night in the hut and slept with one eye open raising their unquiet heads whenever they heard the tramping of a prussian horse on the road in the morning nothing was to be heard i do not know who was courageous enough to poke her nose first out of the wood i expect it was the dog at last however our villagers plucked up their courage and with common accord went back to their native hamlet madame la roi did not receive lisa exactly with open arms but with that gentle irony of which she has the secret well well lisa i understand the old lady is too slow you thought 
She will disturb us. She had better stay at home, and so you scampered off. Lisa protested, and we laughed, and Colette pointed the moral of the adventure. It is very funny, Lisa's story, but don't you think it is just like ours? The Prussians had forced open most of the houses, and had anticipated the taxes which they hoped to levy. Fowls, pigeons, geese without number, and even plump pigs were absent. At Lisa's house the ravishers had shown a certain modesty. A sack of flour, a few pigeons, one or two ducks only had disappeared. But the intruders had turned the room topsy-turvy. Did they look for treasure? And by a sad whim they had seized upon two photographs whose red plush frames were the ornament of the mantelpiece, Lisa in the garb of a nun and Zidore in a soldier's uniform. For what purpose had they torn up these precious pictures? And Zidore had it taken the first day I saw him, so the enemy had destroyed the fond keepsake of a happy day. Really, the age we lived in was hard, and the Prussians heartless. All the world was so firmly convinced of this that everybody stayed indoors as much as possible, and ventured reluctantly out of the village, for fear of dangerous encounters. No one was bold enough to risk horse and cart on the road, since the first soldier that came might requisition both. Happy indeed was the owner who was not compelled to turn back and drive the Prussian to a far-off place. Thus it happened that many a villager, who, having gone out with team and horse for a few hours, came back home on foot and alone three or four days later. From this you may see that communication was not easy, even between places at no great distance from one another. An old lady, seeing the Germans arrive in Chevrigny, died of the sudden shock, and for several days it was impossible to send the sad tidings to her son, who was no farther off than Léon. Indeed, we knew not what was happening in the neighborhood, still less at Morny. The country is overrun with Prussians, we were told. So the emotion was great when it was rumored that flour ran short in Chevrigny, for Chevrigny fed two other hamlets and a great many refugees. Every morning the baker's shop was carried by storm. Every morning the housewives had to wait their turn for an hour to get a loaf. It was a heart-rending sight to see how the baker toiled. His wife did not know which way to turn. His boy knew not what to be at. At this rate the flour sacks would melt away like snow in an April sun. We had to find other sacks or famine would break out in the village. One morning, then, Lisa announced, My horse is required to go and fetch flour at pont -Ave. In the country the word requisition does not exist. You are required, that is all. Mouton, then, was required to go and fetch provender. Very well, he could not tempt the greed of the Germans, being well stricken in years and somewhat lame. But who will drive Mouton? asked Madame Lachois. Well, I don't know, perhaps me, said Lisa. You don't say so, Lisa, her mistress cried out. There are men enough left in the village to do that. Now a woman has to stay at home. That is her right place. In the afternoon Lisa came back and said in a triumphant tone, The blacksmith is driving to pont -Ave. I have told them it is not a woman's job. The good creature was delighted with her saying and repeated over and over again, I told them so. It is not a woman's job. Alas, how many things women had to take charge of which were not women's jobs! How courageous and hard-working they were, the women of the villages! The men had gone to the war and left the harvest ungathered. The work must be done, said the women, and without a moment's rest they bent in toil to the earth. We too did our share. Perched upon steep ladders or hazardous trees, we picked thousands of small blue plums, which Lisa crammed into big-bellied casks. After mysterious treatment, the fruit was expected to turn into an exquisite brandy, 
pronounced by the well-skilled old gossips a cure for every ill. Better than that, we shut up with our own hands Madame Lahoie's hiding-place. For who would have believed it? Her house was not in order. She had buried a cash-box full of golden coins in her garden, but we thought she had better remove a great many other things just as valuable as money. Besides, she had a hiding-place. It was not a fanciful hiding-place like ours, but a serious hiding-place, contrived by a workman, a past master in digging and masonry. The cellar opens into the arched entrance of the house. In a corner of this cellar is a trap-door which, lifted up, leads to a breakneck flight of steps hewn out in the rock. At the foot of the steps is a smaller cellar, which is the hiding-place. We took down the other silver, linen, fine old shawls, at which we gazed with envious eyes, and then the wine. Not all the wine, dear cousin, not all. They will never believe you have no wine at all. When the trap-door was closed, we carried down with great trouble a few barrowfuls of earth, which a skillful hand raked over properly. Then we stamped upon it, swept the cellar, scattered grey dust over the fresh earth, and put old boxes and tubs in the corner. Shrewder than a Prussian would he be who saw anything here. Alas, it was a beast who brought our fine work to nothing. In the course of time we heard that Ulans, on their way through Chevrigny, put horses into the cellar. The horses, as they are wont to, pawed and scratched the ground. It sounds hollow, cried the Prussians. It sounds wine, they went on, in a fit of inspiration, and then discovered they had been cheated. I do not know what became of the other objects, but I know perfectly well the way Madame Lachois's wine went. In spite of these interesting occupations, we were bored. And yet we had discovered in Bouconville, three miles off, a well-stored shop which supplied us with cotton, wool, and stuffs to give work to our idle fingers. In spite of Madame Valen's anxiety, we went, two or three together, and brought back in triumph what was wanting. But we never ventured into the wood, and on our homeward journeys we cast sidelong glances at the sand-pit, whose green shade always allured us. Such is the name of a few acres of wood belonging to my mother-in-law, where I hope some day to install my household gods. There a brooklet murmurs, and hard by shall be my house, with a willow charming and majestic, an ash lofty and elegant to give me shade. There I shall live happily on milk and honey, goats and bees will be mine, with my husband and the children which I trust God will grant me. We shall be once more in Arcady. Thus I mused on my way home, when suddenly some German troops appeared on the horizon to dispel my dream of Arcady, and sent me home in haste to the shelter of the farm. I have said we were bored. Life was chiefly unbearable for want of news. What was going on? For two days we had heard an echo of the guns. Was there a battle? The first Germans we had seen had told us with a sneer, Paris, Paris, within three days we are in Paris. Had the progress of the haughty Boers been stayed? Hope trembled at the bottom of our hearts, hope which dared not grow, and which we dared not avow. Ten times a day we left our needlework, or our book, to run to the garden. We listened. A kind of rumbling was all we heard. Was it to the east, the north, or the south? Was it a singing in our ears, or was it cannon shots? What if we placed our ears to the ground? And so we lay on the grass like so many dead bodies, and concentrated our whole souls in listening. There certainly is a rambling. This conviction filled our hearts with joy and anxiety, and the whole day long we fidgeted about the house. Besides, we could not stay forever in Chevrogny. We had to make up our minds. Since the Germans are here, there, and everywhere, I said, we had better go back home, where at least we are comfortable and at ease. 
In Chiffrani, to be sure, comfort is unknown. For instance, cleanliness does not hold a large place in the people's life, though we had transformed the bakehouse into a very decent bathroom. Every evening Pierrot was washed at the pump and pretended to throw the water which deluged him to the bright and passionless noon. As long as the weather kept warm it was pleasant enough, but all the same home would be better. But before taking so long a journey we thought it well to think it over at leisure. A word from Monsieur Launay settled the matter. There is no danger, he wrote. Someone ought to come back. The house might be occupied. If one of us went, then we would all go. Union is strength. Boldly we had come to Chevrogny by night, nine in number, including the dogs. Nine in number we would go home by day. We had spent a week in Chevrogny. On Tuesday we had Gentil put to. Lisa huddled our luggage into the cart, helped Madame Valen and Pierrot up, and sat on the box. In a few feeling words, one and all took leave of our kind cousin, and we followed on foot. We walked on without hardihood, casting suspicious glances before and behind. The mere shadow of a helmet would have put us to flight. Besides, the horse might be requisitioned, and Lisa left us at Bievre, and drove home as fast as she could. In Bruyere we met with a big dog, almost as alarming as a Prussian. Persinet is fond of fighting, and he cannot bear the sight of his kindred alive. Two days before he had satisfied the thirst for blood by killing two dogs. At the entrance of Morny we passed three riders on the road, dressed in green, booted and spurred with their helmets on. We did not think them mere gendarmes, as we heard afterwards they were. They contented themselves with gazing at the dusty, weary group that went by. At length we got home. Dear little house, it had not altered. Its white walls were still there, so was its grey roof. The Virginia creepers shook their branches like arms to wish us a hearty welcome. We threw the gate open. The dogs rushed into the stable at a cheerful bound. Leaving the luggage in the lobby, we dropped into the dining-room chairs and gave a deep sigh of satisfaction. End of chapter 4